With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. California pistachio growers eye record crop. These are bullish times for California pistachio growers. With more pistachio trees coming online this year, growers appear on pace to produce a record crop that could top 1.2 billion pounds. That's according to American pistachio growers. That number would top the 2021 records crop of more than 1.15 billion pounds. At the trade group's recent conference in Carlsbad, American pistachio growers President Richard Montoyan also said pork congestion that stranded or delayed nut exports during the pandemic has largely been resolved. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report. And now let's get into today's show. Today, starting off with this week's Almond Matters, which is brought to you by Valent. In today's segment, growers have their sights set on another series of storm systems coming through California. In today's Almond Matters segment, we're joined by Todd Berkdahl, Field Market Development Specialist with Valent USA. And now we're looking at some more wet weather in the forecast, but this time it's expected to be a bit warmer than the last series of storms that came through. And so, Todd, what's going to be front of mind for growers here after uh, seemingly one storm after another? Well, you know, it's been cold. We've had freeze events. Now we've, we've had rain events. and Now we're having more rain events. It looks like this one's going to be warming up. So with warmer temperatures and moisture, you basically create the environment for disease, for uh, monolinia, for jacket rot, for, uh, you know, bursitis, depending on the, the, the field and what you got going there. But there's um, a whole host of diseases that like warmer temperatures and moisture. So having something on preventatively before this warm, this warm uh, string of storms come across would probably be a good idea at this point. You know, some guys got some freeze damage up, the, up in the north. So I don't know what the volume of nuts is going to be this year. Uh, I would expect it because of just because of the inclement weather we've had, that the volume would be down. So that the price should come up. I would think. You know, I would. I mean, supply and demand kicks in. So it may be worth uh, spending a few dollars to prevent to protect that crop that's there. Again, the rain during bloom, the bees can't fly, and if anything below. It's 55 degrees, the pollen tubes don't grow. So you got, you know, that component of it. But at the same time, you want to protect what you what you do have. So maybe um, fungicide application in the next three or four days or before Friday, I guess. Today's Wednesday already. So next couple days, probably be opportunistic or maybe you can get it on between the storms because the next delusion storm is supposed to be warm. And uh, I think a bigger concern on everybody's, uh, you know, behalf, especially if you're in low-lying areas or natural drainage areas, creeks. You know, there's a lot of creeks and a lot of rivers used to flow through the San Joaquin Valley drainage from the Sierra Nevada. And those will reappear with uh, with all that snow that's up there if it gets melted. And so they're expecting everything below 6,500 to 7,000 feet being, being hit with warmer uh, rains, which is going to cause a pretty rapid runoff. So I noticed yesterday driving up and down the valley that uh, most of the creeks and uh, even the rivers, uh, Kings River was flowing. So they're letting water out in anticipation of uh, of these storms that are coming because there, it could be pretty significant as far as runoff. So uh, might want to shore up around any orchards that are low-lying as well. 
And in the same vein there, uh, with the logistics of what this storm could mean in terms of uh, runoff and and flooding potential, uh, even in areas that might not be flooding necessarily, uh, the ground is already pretty saturated in most places. So uh, actually getting in those orchards can be a pretty significant challenge there. Yeah, um, you know, most of, um, you know, guys that have been shredding their prunings, you know, and, and putting it back in the orchard, that creates mulch. It's actually creates, you know, it's easier to drive on going back through but a lot of times it's taken out you know and shredded outside or or burned or whatever it used to be burned so i don't know it depends on the soil types for the oyster but if you're in a heavier clay ground it's saturated and you know soil's already waterlogged and then you go in and put another inch or two or three or whatever it's going to bring i don't know of rain on top of that it may be maybe a week 10 days before you can even think about getting equipment back in there so again ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure in this case i think it'd be opportunistic to uh to make fungicide applications preventatively before these storms come um, that's my that's my take on it and i hope that I, I hope the economics you know make it pencil out as far as inputs versus output i i think they will just because of what's happening what the weather's been doing so Anyway, that's my opinion on it for what it's worth. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Starting off this next block of news with today's National Spotlight, filling in for Sabrina Halverson. Right to Repair is progressing in different states. The right to repair is a big topic in American agriculture. Kevin O'Reilly is the director of the Right to Repair campaign for USPRIG, or the Public Interest Research Group. He says a recent memorandum of understanding on a right to repair from John Deere isn't all it appears to be. It's clear when you ask farmers that they don't have what they need to fix their equipment. They have pretty resoundingly said that this is not enough. And so we are continuing to push to make sure that they have all the tools, all the software, whatever it takes for them to fully fix their equipment. Because at the end of the day, they're paying hundreds of thousand dollars for these devices. And it's critical that when it breaks down, that they can fix it and get it back up and running and out in the field. So we are listening to the farmers and we're continuing to push for this kind of change. He talks about where the MOU from John Deere falls short. It limits certain functionalities. So farmers can't access the same level of diagnostic information or troubleshooting information that the dealer technicians can. And in addition to that, they can't pair parts, which is an unfortunate reality of modern equipment. You have to electronically pair a replacement part to the particular machine, to your tractor, your combine, etc. And farmers don't have that functionality, which means they've got to call up the dealer, they've got to 
pay whatever the dealer wants to pay, and they've got to wait as long as the dealer will make them wait. A few states are leading the charge on the right to repair. These are two of the states that are leading the charge. Colorado is actually a state that passed a powered wheelchair right to repair bill last year, and they are looking to reaffirm their status as a leader on this issue across the country. Minnesota, there are bills in both the House and Senate that have made their way through committee and are pushing forward. And then West Virginia is another state where there's legislation that is passed through the state Senate there. So really, we're seeing progress in so many areas. We're seeing farmer-led progress in so many areas, and we're we're hopeful that this is the year that we crack the egg on agricultural right to repair. Again, that was Kevin O'Reilly, and he's with the U.S. Public Interest Research Group. And in other news, CropLife America applauds the U.S. Trade Representative's Office for requesting formal technical consultants with the Mexican government under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. The goal of the consultation is to address a long-standing agricultural technology trade issue. This announcement enforces Mexico trade commitments made in the USMCA and addresses concerns voiced by many in the U.S. ag community, including CLA, regarding the decree's impact on biotechnology traits and pesticides in Mexico. The organization has maintained that Mexico's regulatory actions regarding biotechnology ignore science and risk-based regulations and the scientific weight of evidence from regulatory bodies around the world. CLA shares USTR's concerns and is encouraged by the USTR's focus on the need for a science-based regulatory approach. CLA said in a release, quote, We support the administration's enforcement of a rules-based trading system for agricultural innovation and encourage USTR to also address regulatory delays and barriers that are impacting pesticide regulations in Mexico. These reports were provided by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Again, I'm Danielle Leo filling in for Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. And now here's Randa Wiseman with more Livestock News. Well, in today's Livestock News, with support from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Beef Checkoff Program, the U.S. Meat Export Federation promoted U.S. beef at Gulf Food, one of the world's largest food trade shows, which took place back in February. Joe Sheely has more details. U.S. Meat Export Federation President and CEO Dan Hallstrom has just returned from one of the world's largest trade shows, Gulf Food, in Dubai, where USMEF's participation is made possible through support from USDA, the Beef Checkoff Program, and the Texas Beef Council. He says this year's Gulf Food may have been the largest ever. Gulf Food Show was the second year back from COVID, but this year it was extremely busy, more than back to normal. In fact, I think when the final stats were out, it'll be record attendance. Estimates were that in five days, there'd be over 100,000 people in attendance, and it was quite impressive, as busy as I've ever seen it. While based in Dubai and centered around the Middle East region, it's certainly not limited to that. In fact, I would say it's, it's in fact a global food show. We had a lot of buyers, a lot of interest around the continent of Africa. Buyers from Nigeria, South Africa, Angola, the list goes on. Also, you know, Asia, quite a few Chinese buyers there and a few from other parts of Asia as well. The U.S. industry ships a broad range of beef cuts into the region, with beef variety meat items sometimes serving as a gateway to higher end cuts. 
The whole world sells in the Middle East region, so it's the whole range. It's Indian buffalo meat, it's grass-fed products from Brazil and other places, but it's not too crowded of a space for high-quality grain-fed. We're not appealing to every customer in the region by any means. We're appealing to that demographic that can afford the higher-quality U.S. grain-fed beef, but there's definitely a growing sector for that. On the food service side, demand was absolutely booming in certain parts of the Middle East, the UAE. Qatar, Kuwait to some extent, and most definitely Saudi Arabia. Of course, in the back of our minds, strategically, it's beef variety meats are a good lead-in to the relationships with these buyers, with the ultimate goal being to expand into muscle cuts if they're not already using them. And that's really was the theme in the show this year was, let's talk a little bit about your current business, but what about expanding that portfolio? And it was quite well received. For more information, please visit USMEF.org. For the U.S. Meat Export Federation, I'm Joe Sheely. Thanks, Joe. And Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack this week announced an $89 million investment to finance the startup and expansion of independent meat processors. USDA also announced the department's initial steps to create a more competitive marketplace for seeds and other ag inputs. Vilsack said the investment will promote competition, support producer income, strengthen the supply chain, and increase economic opportunity in rural communities. USDA is providing that $80 million in grants under the Meat and Poultry Intermediary Lending Program in order to increase available financing for independent processors, alleviate bottlenecks, and create opportunities for small businesses and entrepreneurs throughout rural communities in our country. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. GMOs? Genetically engineered? Bioengineered? What's what? Well, GMO stands for Genetically Modified Organism. It's the common term many people use for foods created through a process scientists call genetic engineering. And you'll start seeing bioengineered on some food packages to let you know the product or some of its ingredients come from GMOs. Feed your mind with more GMO knowledge on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. The WOTUS repeal resolution likely to pass the House, possibly Senate. The U.S. House will likely pass a joint House-Senate resolution to repeal the Biden's EPA's controversial Waters of the U.S. rule. And one senator says Republicans may have the votes to pass it in the Senate. The Biden-WOTUS rule would be dead soon after a House GOP majority likely passes a joint resolution of disapproval under the Congressional Review Act, followed by a Senate vote. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley says an identical measure sponsored by 49 Senate Republicans may pick up the needed two Democratic votes. Manchin's already on board to do it, and Tester's a farmer. He knows how this affects farming. I don't know how it affects Montana, probably a smaller percentage, but Tester knows how it affects farming when they, you got to deal with the uh, U.S. government on, on farming regulations. Farm, building, and other groups argue that the Biden-WOTUS rule reversing the one by Trump will lead to more confusion, costs, and fines, even as the Supreme Court decides what actually is a Waters of the U.S. An AFB contributed to that report. 
This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. If you have a really good income year for your farm, you're probably looking for as many tax write-offs as you can find. One of those might involve the purchase of a farm vehicle. But don't assume that when you buy a pickup for the farm that you can deduct the entire purchase price in year one. The IRS has limitations on cars and trucks that prevent certain vehicles from being depreciated or expensed in one year. I'll be back in a moment to discuss. Agriculture needs the next generation. Kansas State University's College of Agriculture prepares students through applied learning, internships, and research. Learn more at ag.ksu.edu. I'll get back to the report in a moment, but I want you to know that Schrader Real Estate and Auction Company has sold farm to ranch land and farm equipment in 40 states. Learn how the Schrader family can help your family. Visit SchraderAuction.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R Auction.com. What are the rules for depreciating farm automobiles? To be depreciable, the vehicle must be used 50% or more in your farm business. Once you clear that hurdle, the depreciation deduction is tied to the business use percentage. For vehicles under 6,000 pounds of gross vehicle weight, the maximum depreciation deduction is capped at $11,200 for the first year, $18,000 for the second year, and $10,800 for the third year. These are the numbers for the 2022 returns currently being prepared. You can also claim bonus depreciation on the vehicle. Larger vehicles are not subject to depreciation limits, but they are limited to $27,000 of expense method depreciation. But if the vehicle is designed to allow more than nine people to sit behind the driver, or it has a cargo area of six feet or more, or does not have seating behind the driver, there is no limit on expense method depreciation. The rules on vehicle depreciation are confusing. Make sure you get good tax advice. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. The Western Mountain snowpack season officially ends in less than a month. And the outlook, according to USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. It has been a fabulous winter across California, Nevada, Utah, and Arizona in particular. Almost every river basin in those four states reporting snowpack that is currently 150 to around 300 percent of average for this time of year. Always a bellwether for any mountain snowpack season in the West is the Sierra Nevada range of California and Nevada. We have a snowpack that has now crept up to around 45 inches or a little higher as of early March. That is close to twice normal for this time of year. And even if no more snow falls during the month of March, that would put us at about 170% of average of April 1st. What this translates to is relief from three years of drought in the Golden State and much of the West. There may be some lingering hydrologic and groundwater issues heading into spring, but effectively California's drought has been diminished to eradicated depending on what part of the state you look at. As well as much needed replenishment of water supplies. One of the big impacts has been a gain in reservoir storage. By February 1st, California had already gained almost 9 million acre feet of water. That doesn't include anything that will come with snowmelt later this spring. 9 million acre feet is just about average for the replenishment that typically occurs in California's 154 primary interstate reservoirs. So even before snowmelt, we've got a pretty good runoff season in place. Reservoirs in California effectively at normal storage for this time of year. And with snowmelt still to go, that is likely to go above average later this spring. 
Going into early March, mixed snowpack conditions are reported in other states. Colorado is not looking bad with really good conditions in the west, a little worse as you head to the eastern slopes of the Rockies. While the Pacific Northwest is experiencing a period of dryness the past several weeks. We are looking at season-to-date precipitation values in our northwestern states that are ranging from about 75 to 90 percent of average. Snowpack's a little bit better than that because we've had a high percentage of the precipitation falling as snow, and it's been cold. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. Well, you might say the magic of Orlando, Florida, shifts to agriculture this week. I'm Mark Oppel. This is the Bottom Line Report for Thursday, March 9th, brought to you by AgriLiquid. Well, two of the last major agricultural winter conventions are taking place in Orlando. Corn, soybean, wheat, and sorghum producers gather for their 27th Commodity Classic, joined with the Equipment Manufacturers Association. Less than two miles away, the National Pork Producers' Annual Pork Industry Forum is underway. Ag Secretary Vilsack speaking today at the Pork Forum, and he'll give the keynote address at Commodity Classic tomorrow. Grain and livestock producers are looking at higher costs of production this year, higher interest rates, expanded government regulations as well. The secretary will likely face a lot of producer questions while in Orlando. AgriLiquid is all about making every dollar count this growing season. That's why they say at AgriLiquid, apply less, but expect more. Learn more about all the great products at agriliquid.com. This is the Bottom Line Report. We look for the grain and livestock trade to trend higher into the weekend. From Orlando, Florida, I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day. The Ag Innovation Challenge is a business-based competition designed to showcase startups in the U.S. Chase Heineman, Director of Industry Relations at AFBF, says they're looking for people who are working on ways to help meet the challenges faced by farmers and ranchers. It is an opportunity for these startups to pitch their ideas to American Farm Bureau, as well as our judges, and to secure funding for their ideas, for their businesses, to help grow 
grow their businesses and take it to the next level. It's also an opportunity for them to interface with other professionals in the startup space. The Ag Innovation Challenge is in its 10th year and has continued growing since it began. He talks about what makes a business a good fit for the challenge. Any startup that is agriculture focused, that is seeking to help farmers and ranchers meet the challenges that they face every day, trying to develop solutions. Those are the types of businesses that we're looking for. Those businesses that are thinking creatively in their product and in their service, but also their business model. Heinemann says this is a great opportunity for new businesses, both from a financial and development standpoint. The Ag Innovation Challenge is obviously an awesome opportunity to get in increase in financing. So if if companies, startups are looking to expand operations or or take their companies to the next level, this is an opportunity. More so even than that, it's a great opportunity to network with other startups. The Ag Innovation Challenge is presented in partnership with Farm Credit. Farm Bureau will award $165,000 in startup funds to 10 businesses. For more information, go to fb.org forward slash challenge. Chad Smith, Washington. Ouch, 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 ouch. With every checkout scan of every food item at the grocery store, we food shoppers can see that prices are higher than they used to be. But it turns out many of us perceive these price hikes as higher than they actually are. Now, back in November, poll takers surveyed thousands of food shoppers. And one of the questions they asked is, what do you think the level of inflation is? And what they came up with is really more than double than what it actually was at the time for food. That's Andy Harrig with the Food Industry Association talking about this at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Outlook Forum. And he said shoppers on average thought the rate of food price inflation at the time was 24 percent. Actually, it was only about 11 and a half percent overall. We say only. That's still very high, but not as high as what most consumers thought it was. Harrig says maybe shoppers got that impression because there were some high ticket food items that were going up at a much higher rate. Eggs, bacon, for example, cereal and bacon. So it's not an entirely crazy kind of perception of this, but it is double what it actually was. And so they are feeling this, I think, more than the reality shows. Harrig says when you adjust for inflation and look at the percent of our incomes that are spent on food. The U.S. food system is actually much more affordable today than it was in 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Uh huh. True statement, yes. However, for many of us food shoppers... They don't care about that, right? They care about their last trip to the store. They care that they are paying more this week than they did the same week last year. And we're really seeing that show up in their feelings and their interpretations of what we're seeing in terms of inflation. And so right now, along with rising food prices... Consumer worries are continuing to rise. Now, Andy Harrig's group does a lot of consumer polls. The latest one was done the second week of February, and Harrig says... 48% of respondents to this poll told us they are extremely concerned about increases in food prices, specifically at the grocery store. And that's up, again, from 40% in October. So that's a pretty significant increase. There's also an increase in the number of consumers worried that they won't have the money for their basic food needs. Some of this is the end of federal aid, so people have less money. You're starting to see people driving up credit card debt, personal savings are going down. But this is concerning for us as an industry that people are feeling these pressures. Again, it's not just that they're paying more, but they're actually worried about if they're going to be able to afford food. He says maybe the extra worry is because we haven't seen food price inflation like this since 1979. And so... No one 
who's under the age of 40 has seen an inflationary environment like this. So it does feel really different. It does feel kind of traumatic when you were going and you were paying a noticeable amount week over week. Meanwhile, food prices continue to rise, and Harrig says... We think it's going to take a while for these prices to moderate. USDA says food prices went up almost 11.5% last year, could go up another 85 this year. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. How are GMO plants made? First, scientists look for a desired trait in a plant, animal, or even bacteria. It could be a trait like resistance to drought, insects, or viruses. Then they copy the gene that contains that trait and insert it into the DNA of the plant they want to improve. Scientists then grow that plant to see if it adopts the desired trait. Feed your mind with more GMO facts on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Today's specialty crop news brought to you by the Almond Board of California. You can find them online at almonds.com. Today we're joined by Associate Director of Agricultural Research with the Almond Board, Sebastian Saw, to talk about nitrogen budgeting. And now we've had some pretty wet and cold weather over the past few weeks, but that doesn't seem to have slowed the season too much. And now growers are going to be looking to uh, start their nitrogen budgeting for the season pretty soon, right? Yeah, correct. Actually, I would say bloom time has been a bit longer than usual. You know, everything was moving quite fast at the beginning of bloom, but then weather came and, uh, you know, trees, tree growth uh, slows down when temperatures go down. And in a way, this is a, a good strategy, a good tree strategy, uh, because it allows the trees to have the flowers viable for a longer period of time and thus compensate a little bit, and I would say a little bit, for the lack of good bee hours. But it also may, it speaks in connection to nitrogen that um, you should wait to apply nitrogen because during bloom, trees rely on their own reserve and their own storage. So you don't need to apply nitrogen until you have at least 70% leaf out. So I guess uh, uh, wait until you, uh, as a grower, wait until you see the 70% of the leaf out and then start your application nitrogen. Before that, it will not be efficient. You will spend money that you don't need to spend this year. And now given the fact that we had some interesting weather for bloom, it started quick, like you said, and then we got some uh, rain and and cold weather there. Uh, How might that alter a grower's nitrogen planning from uh, years prior? I mean, what kind of uh, adjustments might need to be made um, compared to previous plans? Yeah, so conditions for fruit set uh, have not been ideal. I don't think that's a secret anymore. We have gone through pretty much any weather event that you can imagine. So it's super important to monitor the trees monitor and, and and you know we will learn a lot about fruit set by the middle of april and if if, if fruit set is lower than expected then save in nitrogen applications because 
how much nitrogen you apply is a direct function of how, my, how many pounds you're gonna produce during that season. So do not front load your nitrogen and follow guidance and, and really uh, monitor your trees and apply to accordingly to you, you see what's going on. Do not over apply because, especially if you don't have uh, a, big, a big crop year. And in line with some of those uh, notes and suggestions for growers, uh, they're all kind of centered on the concept of the four R's, right? How are those applicable for growers making nitrogen plans right now? Yeah, um, well, the right rate, the right time, the right place, and the right source. Uh, those are the four R's, and they are well described in our nitrogen um, guidance uh, that uh, growers can can get from our website. But, uh, you know, really, I think quick tips for this season account for all your sources of nitrogen, uh, especially the nitrogen that comes in the water or other sources not fertilized. That will help you to save water. Wait until 70% leaf out start and adjust fertigation rates accordingly to your fruit load, to your fruit set. And I think monitor your trees and adjust your plan accordingly to your fruit load as early as, as in April, but also do it in May and June. And ultimately review the material, again, that we have developed for you. I think it really, we are lucky to have summarized uh, more than a decade of research and discoveries into a practical guidance for our growers. So paying close attention there to your particular orchard, uh, where it's at, how it's progressing, uh, it's going to be important for knowing uh, when those right times and, and right applications are going to be needed because uh, growers obviously don't want to apply something that might not be necessary or, or won't be getting the most out of their applications. So uh, really paying close attention is, is how you're going to uh, really be able to uh, fine tune your approach there, right? Yes, yes, really pay attention to the final, uh, to the growth of your fruit and where, where you are, you know, we know you need to apply at the start at the beginning of leaf out, then continue during whole, whole growth and kernel filling and stop there uh, for the, the fruit to mature, etc. And maybe some application could be needed during, during post-harvest, but also that will depend uh, on how your trees are looking at. And so monitoring the trees and following our guidance it's the key for success, I think. And lastly here, you noted that um, ABC has some resources available to help growers uh, get the most out of their nitrogen applications and uh, some of those uh, best management practices for that. So uh, where can they get that information from the Almond Board? Yeah, so I invite growers to visit our website and in the section of nutrient management, they can download uh, the guidance that I was referring to. It's the nitrogen BMPs. Uh, it's a PDF version right there, or we can also, if they, they want to email us and ask for it, we, we also have copies available for, for them to, to grab. Uh, but again, it's a complete resource that walks you through the four R principles. So they find uh, helping you to calculate how much to apply when to apply it and where to apply it. So a uh, really interesting uh, piece of information. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at Statewide Agriculture News at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. 
Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. The surprisingly low wine grape harvest number for 2022 was largely due to factors outside of growers' control. President of Allied Grape Growers Jeff Bitter said the crop was short even when accounting for vineyard removals over the past few years. The crop is definitely short for a third year in a row because of Mother Nature, not because we've removed acreage to the extent that it would cause us to have these types of crops under normal yields. So a normal yield on the acres that we have in the ground currently would still be 4 million tons. When we came off of the oversupply years of 2018 and 2019, we did remove some acres and we had a net reduction in bearing acres, but uh, it certainly was not to the extent that would cause uh, these, these short crops to happen three years in a row. These have all been Mother Nature based. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Drought reduction continues in California. Continual storms with heavy precipitation in California this winter are having a significant impact in reducing long-term drought in California. USDA's Rod Bain has comments from USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. Mountain snowpack accumulations in the Sierra Nevada range continues to grow, perhaps reaching as much as 50 inches of water equivalency once storms pass through the area later this week and approaching near record territory towards the end of the snowpack season. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says this bodes well for both improved water storage in California reservoirs and negating the impacts of long-term drought in the Golden State. However, perhaps the most significant remaining drought impact that we're seeing in California's Central Valley and other parts of the state, lingering groundwater shortages. It's taking time for that moisture to percolate down deep into the soil and into the groundwater reserves. That should continue to improve as we see snow melt and runoff for the remainder of the spring and into the summer. But that is really the lone lingering major drought impact that we're continuing to see in California. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Rupi goes on to say that there is near to below normal temperatures and above normal precipitation across most of the country in this 8 to 14 day weather forecast. Taking a look at the 8 to 14 day outlook covering the period from March 14th through the 20th. The big news as we head into mid-March and beyond is that we will see some cooler air starting to overspread areas that have been experiencing very warm weather. That does lead to some concerns about how much that cold air will work its way into the south. That remains to be seen. What I can say is that most of the country from March 14th through the 20th should experience near or below normal temperatures. The one exception, southern portion 
portions of the Rockies and High Plains expecting above normal temperatures. Even with that cooling trend, we will see a continued stormy pattern nearly nationwide from March 14th to the 20th. The vast majority of the country near to above normal precipitation. Greatest chance of ongoing wetness will be in California and adjacent areas, including the Great Basin and the desert southwest. The only area expecting drier than normal conditions as we head into mid-March and beyond will be the lower Great Lakes region. UC Cooperative Extension is hosting a Sacramento Valley Pistachio meeting next week. The meeting will take place at Norton Hall in Woodland beginning at 8 a.m. on Wednesday, March 15th. The first topic of discussion will be training young pistachio trees. Yolo County Deputy Ag Commissioner Molly Matthews will be providing an update on laws and regulations, followed by a presentation on naval orangeworm management from Cooperative Extension Specialist Houston Wilson. After the morning break, there will be presentations on fungal disease management as well as nutrient management. The meeting will end with Fresno County Nut Crops Farm Advisor May Cullimber going over irrigation management in pistachios. One and a half hours of DPR continuing education hours have been requested for the event. More information on the meeting is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Undersecretary to lead trade mission to Panama. USDA Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs Alexis Taylor will lead a delegation of 26 agribusinesses and farm organizations to Panama City, Panama on March 19th through the 23rd. The mission highlights opportunities in Panama and throughout the Central America and Dominican Republic Free Trade Agreement region. Exports of agricultural products to Panama and CAFTA-DR countries reached a record of $8.8 billion in 2022. That's up 57% from 2018. Taylor says, quote, I'm excited that my first U.S. trade mission is targeting Panama and our CAFTA-DR partners. Adding, quote, the region provides great potential to the U.S. agricultural sector as consumers across the area clamor for the world-class agricultural food and products grown here in America. In Panama City, trade mission participants will engage directly with potential buyers, receive in-depth marketing briefings from the foreign agricultural services and industry trade experts, as well as participate in site visits. Taylor says she's looking forward to connecting buyers and sellers. To find out more information on this upcoming trade mission and future trade missions, visit fas.usda.gov. May it be contributed to that report. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.